0: Turn with me, if you would, to um, the book of Ephesians, Ephesians chapter 4, I'll give a scripture reading for this morning, and then we can open in prayer, but Ephesians chapter 4, Ephesians chapter 4, uh, right after Galatians, uh, it reads this way, beginning in verse 25. Um, I'm going to come back to that verse later, so you don't have to show that one now. Um, in uh, verse 25, it says this, Therefore, each of you must put off falsehood and speak truthfully to your neighbor, for we all are all members of one body. And in your anger do not sin, do not let the sun go down while you are still angry, and do not give the devil a foothold. And compassionate to one another, forgiving each other, just as in Christ God forgave you. Let's open a prayer. Um, Father, we come to you this morning and um, and ask that you would speak to us. Um, you are the God who speaks. Um, that you would speak to us and, and that the limitations that exist in our minds, in our lives, the guilt that we have, the habits we've built up of not wanting to look at you, not wanting to listen because of the guilt that we have in our lives, the confusion we bring, the, the wrong questions that we're wrestling with, um, the distractions that are in our minds um, either existing in this room or outside of this room, all of the things that limit our ability to hear from you. You are light. Um, there's, no, there's no problem with us having the knowledge of God. It's just that we, we really do find ourselves in the corners of rooms, in dark places, struggling to be out into the light, out into the open. And so I pray um, that whatever it is, you would cause us to just stop, to pause, to be present, to hear your voice. In Jesus' name, amen. Um, we 're entering into a series called as we speak and it 's really a, a series that 's interesting it 's one that 's been brewing for a long time, and Pete and I have spent a good bit of time talking about it but we uh, run into verses all throughout the Bible that, that have to do with words, have to do with language, have to do with the tongue, have to do with communication, but we we always kind of navigate around those to get at what we would consider the real meaning, the real idea, the real important part right we take words really lightly. Um, and that's funny because all of human relationship really hinges on language and communication and words. If there was no communication, no body language, no anything that we could perceive coming from another or, or be able to give to another, then all other subjects would, would really cease. Um, Ephesians here talking about forgiveness. Forgiveness comes through speech and through words that we speak. Uh, love comes and is channeled through words or, or the look in our eyes that's soft or inviting or affirming. That, that communication really is the conduit for all things relational. Um, and words, this idea of words or language, it's kind of all around us. Um, I, I kind of pulled up some quotes that are fun this way, but we do actually talk about words. Sometimes, here's Dwight Eisenhower saying, an intellectual man... Uh, An intellectual is a man who takes more words than necessary to tell more than he knows. An intellectual is a man who takes more words than necessary to tell more than he knows. Uh, Mark Twain, action speaks louder than words, but not nearly as often. Um, Ronald Reagan, Reagan had a lot of good ones, by the way. Uh, Ronald Reagan, the most terrifying words in the English language are, I'm from the government and I'm here to help. Um, Reagan also said uh, I, I'm, I'm, I'm an independent so I, I, I equally offend both parties you guys know that um, Reagan said something to Democrats that was really funny he says it's not that they're liars it's just that there's so much that they know that's not true <laughs> um, which I thought was a great political one-liner um, but words have uh, causal powers Raymond Floyd they call it golf because all the other four letter words were taken. Um, they, they have a, a way of communicating something, even that laugh right there. It came on the other end of my words. Um, we sang this morning, um, Oh, the joy of full salvation, sin and death defeated, glory um, to your name. What does that mean? And what's the effect that has on us? What is full salvation? It means that we really don't have to live in fear. Jesus over and over trying to get us to understand that he came here so that we could be set free and then not be taken captive again by, by fear or worry or concern. When we sing the joy of full salvation, that our sin and our death no longer have the same hold or meaning on us, glory to God's name because he's done this, those words, if we're, we're truly worshiping, They have an effect on us. Words are causal. They have power. I think of um, back in in grad school, learning about Einstein and, and his frustrations with the concept of gravity. Gravity is something that we can describe better than explain. Right? We can describe it, something falls this fast, or something of this mass out in, in outer space has a gravitational pull uh, on other bodies, moons and, and the like. But we can describe it better than we can explain. Where did this come from and why, why does it exist and how does it really work? Right? And so Einstein had this phrase that always stuck with me at a very scientific professor by the name of Gary DeWeese. So he would always bring science into philosophy and all that, but he, he relayed this phrase that that Einstein called gravity um, um, the spooky reality of operating at a distance. You know, the this this spooky operation at a distance. In other words. It, it two things act as if they're causally connected but you can't see any billiard balls any dominoes between the two things it's this spooky action at a distance does that make sense like it's how does that really work but in a spooky way there's this action at a distance that we can't really explain words are like that i mean i'm i'm you in the back you up front same words, I don't see the dominoes, you know. but somehow they go into our minds, affect all of the psychology, all of our experience, all of the language that we have, and something begins to arise in us, this sense of peace, or this sense of longing, or this sense of question, what is really going on in my relationship with God, and words are causal, and they have this spooky action at a distance, Genesis chapter 1, we'll just take it right from the beginning. Genesis chapter 1, it should be on the screen here, but one of the first verses of of Scripture of our Bible is this idea that as God is creating, this interesting thing emerges that he doesn't put his hands on stuff, um, but he speaks. And God said, let there be light, and there was light. I mean, spooky action at a distance. God's voice, God's language all of a sudden brings about a reality within our cosmos um, that begins to set the stage for us to have life. So words are causal. If we go back to Ephesians 4.29, um, in the middle of the scripture I was reading, uh, interesting story here. I, we don't have a wana at Antioch. Sometimes I wish we did because it is a good thing for us to memorize Scripture. Scripture, somehow as we take it in and it's hanging around in the back of our mind, connections um, are made. Or I think when we're really praying to God, like, God, I just need to hear from you. I need to know that you care, that you're around. All of a sudden we recall these verses that we've learned, these promises of God being with us. And so memorizing Scripture is this amazing kind of value that, I don't know that we do a good enough job with. I don't know that I do a good enough job with it. It's just too easy for me to get on Bible Gateway on my phone anytime I want and, f- and do like search strings. So as long as you're smart enough to know what words to search, you can find anything within you know 60 seconds. It's not the same. But when I um, was finishing up college, I spent the summers at Pine Summit, which was a Christian college camp, and I've told a lot of stories from that. But we would do... The first couple of weeks for, for little kids, and then we would go into more of a um, high schoolers and junior hires spending the night kind of doing your traditional camp in the cabins with the bunks and all that stuff. But we would have this curriculum that they would go through for the week. And the very first summer that I was there, when I was really still trying to wrestle out what was true and what was right, and what does this mean to have a relationship with God, like really mean, there was this verse that we began Kind of with the little kids the first week. And with the little kids, you put a lot of energy in. You try and act things out. You try and make it like easy for them to hook. Does that make sense? And so because I kind of was from the East Coast, and I was in, in uh, the mountains above California, and it was all these Christians coming from Christian colleges, so I was trying to make an impression. Um, I was under the impression, by the way, that now that I'd become a Christian, I was going to get a wife right away. Um, this is confession time like i I kind of i, I don 't really think I thought about it a lot, but I think I had a subtle sense that now that I'd really turned fully to God and I had gone and shown up with all these Christian people, guys and girls my age, that the next because we we write out the blessings we 're going to get from God, don't we like we kind of make a list and we put it in order of what we think logically should happen if we 're walking by obedience, and so I kind of thought like. The next thing was I was going to meet a girl and get married because now I'm walking in obedience. And so I was really trying to make a lot of impressions. And so those first couple weeks, a lot of energy acting things out. Things were going good. Um, I I thought I was making good impressions. (laughs) Um, I had big ideas. And then I got sick. And I was sick the whole rest of the summer. Um, And then I blew out my ankle and... um, and for half the summer was on, on crutches and then like an air cast and, and on and on and on. And it was one of the most difficult summers of my life. And it wasn't what I thought was going to happen. What I, what I realized when I went back to college was that it was what I needed. Um, I went back and was dumped right into the middle of the fraternity where... Somehow the, the reputation had gone out that I'd got, gotten religious, and some people thought I, that meant like I was a Hare Krishna. Like they just were thinking all these weird things. And I was living right in the middle of the fraternity hall, not being able to go to bed at 10 o'clock, trying to do engineering, all this, but having to stay up till 2 and 3 in the morning because of the doors slamming as everybody was coming back from downtown or the bars. And I had to answer questions from day one from all sides. I had to answer the sober questions over dinner. I had to answer the drunk questions at 2, 3 in the morning when people would come back and, and just want to talk and, and throw a lot of I love you mans in there. Um, and it was challenging to be the outsider and it was challenging to have things not go the way I thought it would and it was challenging to be alone and to experience difficulty. And I realized that the summer was really what I needed to get ready to go back to college, right? There was a verse in in Jeremiah chapter 12, where God is prepping Jeremiah for his ministry. And he says, if you can't run with the horses, then how do you expect to really handle the difficulties and the challenges that are going to come when I, when I put you into your calling? So don't complain about running with the horses or really having this challenge or difficulty now. If you can't stand up now, how are you going to stand up then? So this interesting summer of turmoil and all this this verse was one of the verses that just got, just got stamped into my mind because I taught it each week to people. And it's been one that's just banged around ever since. But let no unwholesome talk come out of your mouth, but only what is helpful for building up others according to their needs so that it may benefit those who listen. So these spooky words that have an action at a distance, there's a purpose for them. Mainly that if we are loved like God is loved, then our words that carry power are going to go out and accomplish some action at a distance, namely the action of building people up, people that are hurting, suffering, questioning, people that are in need, people that are human, that it's going to help build them up according to their needs, not my desires, so that other people that are listening are going to also be shaped by this so that we collectively affirm that words have a purpose. And that's that we would come into unity and that we would all grow into the fullness of what God intended for us when He created us. So there's this fascinating thing about the causal power of words. Um, George Bernard Shaw says, Syllables govern the world. Friedrich Nietzsche, I always uh, have a hard time quoting him in church because um, it doesn't feel like it belongs, but I like, I like when Nietzsche said, all I need is a sheet of paper and something to write with, and then I can turn the world upside down. Um, I think the Bible is a living example of that. Uh, the written word turning the world upside down. Hebrews chapter 4, verse 12, For the word of God is alive and active sharper than any double-edged sword. It penetrates even to dividing soul and spirit, joints and marrow. It judges the thoughts and attitudes of the heart. The word of God is alive and active. Why do we not read the Bible more? Why do we not read the Bible more? It's an it's a interesting question, right? This is a, another grand failure of mine. I've got 20 years in ministry, and I do not think I have done an adequate enough job of getting people into their own Bibles start to finish so that they know the story of God and the words of God. Massive failure on my part. I'm 44. I've got a long list of massive failures I'm coming to grips with. But why, why don't we? Well, because it doesn't maybe feel relevant because it's a different time and place. Because some of it feels um, clunky, like the book of Leviticus, right? Right? Um, because uh, we don't understand all of what we're reading. Because uh, it's, it, it doesn't feel compelling enough because there's a lot of urgent things that come to us when we wake up in the morning, when we hit the ground running. And so maybe the Word of God, the Bible, Scripture, just doesn't feel compelling enough to, to, to sort itself out in our list of priorities. Um, Because we don't have the habit, why don't we have the habit? Because we're really not drawn into it with the fullness of our heart and passion that this would become our habit. Because no one has modeled it for us. We haven't been mentored. We haven't had an example. Some things are better caught than taught. And so maybe we haven't had someone that's been able to pull us along. All of these reasons are legitimate reasons for why we would not read a book filled with words that are dead. Does that make sense? If the words in Scripture are dead, they're just content only, then there's a lot of reasons, many I just kind of listed out for you, and I think logical reasons why it would fall to to the bottom of our priorities and we would not read the Bible all that much. Um, We all would raise our hands and say we think C.S. Lewis is a great guy and he wrote a lot of great books, and most of us probably haven't read many of them. Our reasons are good reasons, right? It's those words on the page that C.S. Lewis wrote, those, those might be good words, but they just don't fit in my, my priority matrix. If words are dead, then there's really nothing wrong with kind of them falling to the bottom of our list of priorities. What's interesting, and I think what I'm beginning to try to argue to you is God said, let there be light. God spoke to prophets to write words down so that his words would be recorded for the generations. We are a people of the book, are we not? The word of God is alive and it's active. And it's sharper than any double-edged sword, which means it's, it's a weapon or a tool that is more effective than in that day and age what was kind of the symbol of power or strength or efficiency, right? This idea of this sharp sword, that this is sharper than the sword. And it penetrates even to dividing soul and spirit, joints and marrow. It judges the thoughts and attitudes of the heart. I can take a sword and I can cut your leg off. I can take a sword and I can chop your arm off. I could even separate your head from your body. This double-edged sword goes deep, very, very deep, but it can never separate your thoughts in your head. And the scriptures that are alive and that are this powerful, they go all the way deep, deeper than a sword could do it, but it begins to sort out your your mind, the confusion, the questions, the wrestling, the hurt, the pain, that the words of God accomplish some spooky action at a distance and they change us. These words have power. If we believe that to be true, I mean, really believe that to be true. If we own that and feel that truth, then, then slowly the Bible and our engagement with Scripture and, and interacting with these words that have power, slowly that should begin to, kind of like um, air bubbles underneath the surface of water, that should begin to rise up in our list of priorities so that somehow we make room for something powerful, not something dead. I think we've got to call out the fact that we're treating God's word differently than God's word um, reveals itself to us to be. We treat it as if it does not have the power that it claims to have. Um, Words shape us. In the Bible, um, we see this in the book of Proverbs, the sayings of the wise, that somehow we're going to record the sayings of the wise, and that's going to change everything about you if you follow them. Uh, Jesus said, you've heard it said, but I say. He's saying that somehow you know bits and pieces of this truth, but I'm trying to reveal more to you or a deeper reality to you. And so we see him fulfilling this prophecy that was in Isaiah 6, chapter 9, where uh, God said, go and tell this people, be ever hearing, but never understanding. Be ever seeing, but never perceiving. Jesus Fulfills this Matthew thirteen fourteen, he fulfilled the prophecy of Isaiah. You will be ever hearing but never understanding. You will be ever seeing but never perceiving. In other words, the people that were following around Jesus, some of them didn't know how to locate what he was saying. They heard the words, um, they, they heard the syllables but they weren't able to put that in a framework where they actually understood what, what God is doing in this world and what Jesus meant by trying to connect us to that work. That somehow, although they had the organs for understanding, the eyes to see, the ears to see, they actually couldn't derive the true meaning that was going on. Why is that? Um, I think we, we find ourselves in the same position um, because we're not searching out the meaning, and we're not looking at all the connecting material. Someone, uh, a good friend of mine, Facebooked me uh, a couple days ago. Hey, what's the sermon on this week? And, and is it going to be expository? In other words, is it going to get into Scripture? The, the import of that question was really, um, are, we, are we really learning the, the text, the whole text of God, what's really meant, the different parts and how it connects? Or are we not? Because the connecting material really matters. The transitions matter. The intros matter. The conclusions matter, right? And so that's kind of what I think this person was getting at. Um, here's my illustration for saying that. together now, if you know it, um, John 3.16. I'm dead serious. This is like, I don't normally do that because I hated when teachers treated me like a kid when I was in school. Like, and what I mean by that is actually make me do something. Um, I guess I realize how uh, childish that was. Um, so John 3.16, if you know it, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whosoever believeth in him should have. I'm, I don't, I'm not a singer, so I don't get to do that cool thing where you pull from the mic and then you hear. That was my one moment um, of doing that. All right, all together now. Um, the sentence before that one, all together now. Ready, set. <laughs> Anybody? 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 <laughs> um. That's the verse after. Yeah, that's pretty good. Um, that's, that's pretty. I mean, that's extra credit. Like I, uh, we we do a family service. You guys know this. the The week after Christmas, usually we let the volunteers kind of take a break. So it's family service. All the kids in, and every once in a while we bring lollipops and we'll ask questions like this to make it like kid friendly. And you know, when when people get things right or close closely, right, we, we give him a lollipop. Um, and I don't have any with me, but that would have, that would have, totally, that would have totally been lollipop worthy. Um, hopefully you're feeling what I'm illustrating here. Um, here's the verse. I think it's on the screen. Just as Moses lifted up the snake in the wilderness, so the Son of Man must be lifted up, that everyone who believes may have eternal life in him. The verse that we don't know before John 3.16 is actually a verse that connects itself to one of these dominant metaphors in the life of, of Israel as they're going through the desert. The story was they, they'd been run over by a, a bunch of snakes, vipers, and God created a way for Moses to lift up this kind of bronze snake, um, and the idea was it was going to be like everything was in the desert. I mean, just listen to to that word, what we know to be true about that word. Everything in the desert, the wandering place, the dusty place, the dry place, was all about faith. God is bringing his his people out of Egypt and into a place where they're supposed to live as a faith-filled covenant community, and they have to be trained that way. And God is training them step by step, and this is one of those crazy tests and you can, you can ask why, and, and i don 't have the answer. you can ask God someday, but but this is a, one of those times where God provided a way out, but you had to trust it's like it 's like uh, when Peter walked on water, he had his eyes on Jesus and, and this crazy reality, but when the fear around him overtook him. Then he began to sink, and so here's God's way for you to be saved from this kind of calamity, but when you stop trusting that and you begin to react and say, I'm going to have to deal with this in my own human striving, I'm freaking out here, then, then somehow you would sink into the water, right? Like this is a, a crazy metaphor in scripture, and God is saying it wasn't just for that period of time, this was actually illustrating what I'm doing with the whole story of Scripture, the redemptive arc, the, what they call the, uh, the scarlet. I was going to say silver thread. It's not silver. It's scarlet. It's because it's like the blood, right? The blood of Christ. Um, I don't know why silver came to mind scarlet thread of redemption, this kind of path all the way through Scripture where God is pointing ahead to what He's really doing. He's not doing anything by accident. And so He's, he's creating this because this is not just in that place kind of the illustration of what it means to be saved when we look to God, but when, when we look to Jesus who is put on the cross so that we can, we can look around in our own mess and the sinfulness of the world, And sink or we can look to the cross and be saved and so the New Testament is saying this is the fulfillment of that this is the fulfillment of that when you're drowning in your finances when you're drowning in the the depression that comes on from going to Facebook these days when you're drowning in the uncertainty of life moving really fast when you're drowning in the uncertainty of broken relationship is that relationship going to come back is it never going to come back? And the uncertainty and the loneliness can just kill you. When you're, when you're drowning in the effects of your own sin, I didn't really think when I did that that it would have these consequences. And can't I start over? Can't I get it back somehow? Can't I just walk it back and, and, and go a different way? Do I really have to sit the rest of my life with these consequences? When we're looking at our bodies that are wasting away and physically we're dealing with like, is this going to be a short-term malady? Or is this, is this really something's going to be with me for a lifetime? Or is it going to cost me my life? When we're dealing with the sinking, Scripture speaks spooky words that act at a distance and says, Oh, the joy of full salvation. Sin and death defeated. Glory to his name. Because we can look to the cross. We can look to this symbol that God loved us. God has always loved us. And he's always planned to save us out of a broken world. Or to remake, better yet, better language, to remake the broken world that we exist in. And so we can be set free. Like, I can choose to overcome the diagnosis that I'm, you know, that I'm dealing with, or that you're dealing with. That I can consider that trial pure joy. That I can even look at death like Jesus. And, and the book of Hebrews says, for the joy set before him, Jesus endured the cross. In other words, there is a joy beyond the grave that can motivate us to have joy going to the grave. Think about that for a second. There's a reward, a weight of glory, a joy, a pleasure beyond the grave that can motivate and give us joy going to the grave. So what can you do to me? Can you take my life? Sure. But you can't take the promise I have, the hope I have. Can you take away my money? Sure. But you ultimately can't take away my knowledge that God will bring me the daily bread that I need as I move forward. I have words that have power and help me understand things. We pick little bits and pieces. I think the people in Jesus' audience had done the same thing, little bits and pieces, and took that as the whole of knowledge of God. There's a game show. Some of you might remember it uh, from a long time ago. It's called Jeopardy. Um, Or or is it still on TV? Um, It is, isn't it? It really shouldn't be, Um, but the idea—the whole idea—was we're going to give bits and pieces, and then see when you can guess the the whole of the meaning. Because there's this tension that until you have enough, um, and until you know, you can maybe bring your your perception, your your intuition, your—it's not Jeopardy, it's Wheel of Fortune. You guys. Should have known that. Nobody is it still on too? It should be off too. There should be an expiration date on these things. Um, it's Wheel of Fortune. <laughs> you guys are like that's not Jeopardy. It's um, so a Wheel of Fortune. Like we're given bits of data, turn in the letters, right? Bits of data, and then eventually you're gonna guess what the whole sentence says. And and people that are really smart, really intuitive, really perceptive. You know, at some point they can get it before other people get it, right? But you still need a certain amount of data before you can even fill in the blanks, right? We have a lot of phrases, by the way, about language, half the story, blah, blah, blah. There's a lot of idioms and cliches. But so we realize there has to be enough data to really get the meaning. That's true of Scripture, too. You cannot have just John 3.16, and maybe a couple of the other ones that you don't even know what the reference is. You just kind of have them memorized. You can't just have the Lord's Prayer. You can't just have and, and go, I've got it. I know what this is about. I know what I need to speak to my fears and my doubts and and the discouragers in my life. I know the word. I know the message. I know the power. I, I know what I need to speak to these circumstances because they don't have power over me. I can understand what God is doing in the midst of this. I understand where I'm located. I understand the verses that God gave that would encourage me in the Psalms. I know the songs I should sing sorry, of lament. I know the songs that I should sing of celebration. I know the tradition that I come from. I know what to say when I think, did we just make this all up? Did this just come about from Billy Graham? Or or is it like deeper and bigger and longer? Like, I know the things that, that anchor me in. Way back Uh Tamara's in Rick Earhart's class on creation and was learning that there are the names of constellations in the book of Job. And she was talking to me last night at the table. She's working on a paper. And she's like, think of that. Like before the pyramids were built, there are names for the constellations that we still have today. Like mind-blown right? The tradition, the anchor, the understanding that we're all caught up in something bigger and longer and deeper. It also kind of makes this whole idea that I know Jesus is coming back in my life sound a little silly. Because God is working through time, through a lot of generations. Lots and lots and lots and lots of them. And I think when we lose sight of how we anchor into all of those generations that have come before, and we just get a little bit myopic in our thinking, it's real easy to just grab and go, well, surely Jesus might be coming back in my generation. Probably is. I could even give you the date. Um, it's whenever the next political party comes in office. And, and we think that why? Well, look around you. Everything's going to hell. You know, there's wars going on. You know, there's, there's, really, there's really bad stuff. <laughs> and when was there not? We live in the age of vaccines. We live in the age of antibiotics. We live in the age of medical advances that, that allow us to prolong our lives. We live in the age when, when you do something in the world... Other countries actually know and care and put sanctions on you. Do you know that's new? Go back 150 years and you know, you kind of just were dealing with the people on your borders. Maybe some treaties at a distance, but you could do whatever you wanted to that little country that wasn't powerful there and people that aren't even going to hear about it for three or four weeks and then their answer is going to come to you in three or four weeks are not really as big of a threat. Like we live in a unique age. That way. Maybe it's not better, maybe it's just as bad, but my point is, is when we don't understand the span of things and, and we don't understand the traditions and we don't understand the history, and that God was just as much a, at work in those times as he is today, then we we just think everything has to do with us right here, right now. And and it's not really ultimately all about us, it's about the relationship we get to have with God to connect to his story. It's really all about him. You see? Um, I, uh, not, to, not to pump up Rick too much, you know, you chair of the board, you're supposed to humble him a lot so that he doesn't get a big head. Um, but he was praying for a board meeting recently. We were having a meal. And it was really interesting to me. He was praying and he said in a restaurant and as he prayed he said bless the hands that have prepared this food anyone, is that strange to anyone? no? that's pretty familiar language but then Rick continued um, and bless the, the hands that have picked this food bless the farmers that grew this food and thank you God for the sun that you sent um, and, the, and the rains that, that helped grow this food does that sound a bit different? Doesn't it all sudden words are giving me a picture of the world that that helps me connect with with my fellow human beings and and understand the cycles that God has created much more than just bless the hands that prepare it as a little catchphrase because I've heard it before and I just passed it on almost dead words Rick's words were alive to me Um, I want to camp on that for a second his words were alive to me. There's other people in my life that their words over time are alive to me. C.S. Lewis is deeply profound. I feel like his words are alive to me. My wife is deeply discerning. Her words are alive to me. I think the more that you get of, of something alive in a person into their words that, that kind of affect you, the more you begin to realize they are embodied in their words. That interacting with their words is, is actually capturing... Um, who they are, and, and getting the essence of them. So I'm going to transition this. John 1. I don't know that we've fully grappled with this yet, what this really means. But John chapter 1, a very familiar verse, but maybe we have a little bit more context to understand it now. But John 1 says... In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was, made, he, w- uh, he was with God in the beginning, and through Him all things were made. The power of the Word to create. Without Him, nothing was made that has been made. In fact, everything reduces down to words. Everything at some point reduces down to the power of Of God's Word. Think about that. Every single thing. There was nothing that was made that was, um, through Him all things were made. Without Him nothing was made that has been made. And in Him was life. And that life was the light of all mankind. The light shines in the darkness and the darkness has not overcome it. Um, And it goes on, verse 9. Uh, The true light that gives light to to everyone was coming into the world, and he was in the world, and though the world was made through him, the world did not recognize him. And it continues, verse 14, The Word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only Son, who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. The Word became flesh. I want to offer to you that God's Word is so complete, so alive, so powerful, so representative of who he is and what he intends, that that word is is literally the embodiment of God. Jesus says, when you see me, you see the Father. When you hear me, you hear the Father. There is nothing about the Father that you're not gonna also see reflected in me. So Jesus is the embodiment. Uh, He is the word of God, the living word of God that reflects who God is, fullness of power, I find that absolutely fascinating and then helps me understand that somehow Jesus' teachings, when he taught with authority and power that the other religious teachers didn't have, that there was something really significant there. And when he said to them in answer to their questions, How do you not know this? Is it not written? Is that not in the Bible too, even though you're not turning to those pages? Is it not reflected in God's heart in the living scriptures that this is what he was about? I don't understand that although you profess to speak for God, that you don't understand or you're not getting right so many of these things because Jesus was concerned about all of the connecting bits of Scripture, all of the intros and the conclusion, all of the metaphors, all of the illustrations that come together and give us a true and accurate and full representation or picture of God in living flesh. I... uh, I'm going to land with this kind of idea. And it's coming off of the idea of the Tower of Babel. Um, they were all speaking in the same language. And so they had unity. And so they were building. They thought they had might. We're going to build to the heavens. And for some reason, God actually didn't like this. And I'm guessing it's a bigger part of his story and, and his intentions. But God saw this, that they thought they had all that they needed in and of themselves. And God confuses their language And and they end up uh, divided. Tower of Babel doesn't get built to the heavens. And so we have this kind of um, scattering of languages. So unity comes with one language, but somehow without God in that equation. When God takes away the one language, we find ourselves divided with a lot of differences. And then Jesus comes to unite us, to unite us in love, to unite us in common purpose, to unite us in one Savior. Uh, There is no other way but Jesus. When we come to him, we are all part of the one body or the one church of Christ, right? So we are somehow now coming out of division back into unity. Does that make sense? We're coming from not the same language back into a position of uh, a sameness of relationship or a oneness of relationship, heart, intent, purpose. How does that happen? How does that happen? I think that the idea is simply this. That unity, if it comes out of different languages, requires intentionality. It requires struggle. It requires love. We have to fight for unity out of the the, the diversity. And I think because we think That words are dead, we go, everything's supposed to be united. You don't look like you're on board with with the ideas here, so you must be wrong. You don't understand what a Christian should vote this election, so you must be wrong. You don't think like I do, so you must be wrong. You use your words to accomplish different things than I do, you must be wrong. You do your family differently. You do your uh, this differently. You have... Out of the differences... Instead of going, now, this is going to be really hard. Boy, this person, it's a project right there. It's going to take me like a decade with this person. All right, I'm game. Let's go for it. Like, instead of realizing that out of the difference that we're supposed to fight to a position of commonality because of Christ, that even if we don't change each other, we still love each other and respect each other because of Christ, Right, and because of the dignity that we each share. We have to fight for unity, but somehow we've gotten into this lazy thing of thinking that if you, if you have the same words and interpret them the same way that I do, then, then we have unity. And if you don't, if you have a different language, different way of holding it or expressing it or uh, interpreting it, then somehow you're on the other side of the line and you're wrong. I don't really have to do anything there because why? You're wrong. It's your responsibility. It's your fault. The disunity is something you should inherit because of your actions. Do you see how it's logical, but it completely misses the point that Jesus didn't come to give us a logic to justify our brokenness. He came to give us the good news and empower us with the spirit so out of our logical brokenness we could find a spiritual, right, or a beautiful oneness that reflects the heart of God, the love of God, what God intends for this world. And it's a hard one reality. I used to say that I never wanted to serve on a, a, a church elder board unless I'd been in an argument with somebody. Why? Because if you haven't been in an argument, you guys are using the same nice language with each other. Only in an argument and you start fighting do you realize oh, I have to do hard work here either to better understand my language or how I've miscommunicated or to say words like, I'm sorry, it's my fault, or to say words of forgiveness or to just hang in there long enough so we can learn from each other and begin to respect one another, right? The hard-fought unity is the only kind of unity that really exists. And so God mixed up the languages and we ended up separate. Jesus came and prayed and called and labored so that somehow we would catch a vision of what he was trying to do and fight for unity with one another. That's way different than I thought it ever was. And that changes the way I see words. Ephesians 4.29. Let no unwholesome talk come out of your mouth, but only what is helpful for building up others according to their needs, that it may benefit those who listen. I have a responsibility and a duty to use the weapons, the powerful tools that are my words, the things that have this spooky action at a distance, to accomplish the unity that this broken world needs and that Christ came to accomplish. Um, We think of love purely in turn. By the way, that's true in marriage and race relations with our children and politics. We don't get unity by default. Marriage, you don't get the two become one just because you said some, some words early on. You get it because of how you use your words and which words you use and the priority you give to certain kind of difficult conversations through time that keep you united. Right? Like this is a chosen reality that affects our words. But we think of love in terms of actions. We're going to give food for the homeless. We're going to give a care package to someone who's sick. Uh, We're going to make a meal for someone that had a baby or is in need. We're going to make a donation to the vulnerable people uh, in Africa or Asia or somewhere where there's a famine or something going on that way. We're going to befriend um, someone of a different culture in terms of an action. Our notion of love, I think, is restrictive. Our notion of love is restrictive. It didn't say God acted and there was light, and there was dark. It was more specific than that. It said God spoke, and reality springs into being. Um, We have to have a notion of love that emanates from the Word in us that might be reflected in our actions, but certainly is made manifest or embodied in the truth of our words our intentions, our speech, our communication. What would love look like if those same people were loved um, only in a a way that was restricted to words? So if we restrict it to actions, and we say, look, what if we just tied our our hands behind our back and said, we only have words? Today, when you walk out of here, you only have words. You can open the door for someone that's, form of communication but what if you only had your words would we be a light to each other would we be an encouragement to each other if we had a infrared scanner of of this high school in bend oregon would it be hot you know what i mean like would you see heat coming out of this room because of the way words were being used and the life and the action that was coming from those words like what if that's a discipline for us what if we need to learn to have a more expansive view of love Um, Robert Frost said, poetry is when an emotion has found its thought, and the thought has found words. Um, I don't know what the application for you is today. There might be an application with you and God and going, man, I need more of those words in my life. I, I need words to bring life to me. I'm in the desert um, and I needed daily bread. Why, why the daily bread? Why was the manna every day? Why did we need Sabbath? Because if it wasn't every day, we wouldn't be getting the lesson of faith that says, I live because literally the bread come down from heaven. And then Jesus says, he, the word of God, is the bread come down from heaven that we we hang on the words of God that get us through the day, that give us the strength, that somehow that's where faith comes from. That's the language of faith. If we had everything we need, all the bread, if we had everything we needed, all the content, I now filled my head with all the information, don't need it anymore, then we wouldn't need God either. We would just run forward into the future with our own bread manufacturing, with our own theologizing, but God's like, no, no, Um, faith means walking each day trying to receive new uh, the bread sent from heaven the word come from god the power that is inherent in what god is speaking to us Um, so may we reflect either on our relationship with god if that's what you need or our relationship with each other and to realize our our degree of unity and the love we share is a direct reflection of the words that we've been bathing that relationship with or starving that relationship from. Um, So whatever your application is today, let's pray. And then as we go back to song, may that go deep. Um, May we be able to act on that as we walk out. Father, um, let us not treat Jesus as just a historical figure. Let us not just treat Jesus as a religious teacher. Um, let us not just treat Jesus as a biblical subject or a, a part of the formula whereby we're saved. Let us not just speak Jesus' name as some kind of a creedal affirmation or something we've got memorized in certain Bible verses. Father, let us see and speak of Jesus as the word of God that has become flesh, the embodiment of of your power, of your thoughts, of your love. As our King, as our Lord, as our High Priest, as our Savior, as our friend, as our brother, as the one who is the head of the church, let us see that life comes from Jesus, that we are the vine, uh, that, that we are the branches, I'm sorry, and He's the vine, that somehow there's living water, living nutrients, life itself that comes from Christ to us. So if we treat words as dead, we're going to be dead. If we treat words, maybe, your son, maybe, as living, maybe we will find life in that. He has come to bring us life and life to the full. Father, let us see Christ rightly this morning. And it's in his precious name we pray. Amen.